Welcome to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. Hi, I'm Sarah Butler and welcome to Location Matters. The way we use satellite imagery and cloud computing is changing the way we understand our planet and it's influencing how we make environmental and policy decisions on a macroeconomic scale. Global Fishing Watch is an initiative started in 2015 through a collaboration between three partners, Oceana, an international ocean conservation organisation, SkyTruth, experts in using satellite technology to protect the environment, and Google, who provide the tools for processing big data. Their vision is to advance ocean governance through increased transparency of human activity at sea, create and share public map visualisations, data and analysis tools, and enable scientific research and transformations in how we manage our ocean. By 2030, they aim to monitor and visualise the impact of ocean-going vessels, both industrial and small-scale, that are responsible for the vast majority of the global seafood catch. The work being done by Global Fishing Watch is no mean feat, and today I'm humbled to be joined by David Krutzma, Director of Research and Innovation at Global Fishing Watch, and Brian Sullivan, Program Manager at Google Earth Outreach. Guys, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, it's fun to be here. Thanks for having us. So I'd love to give you a moment to introduce yourself in the way you'd like to, to our listeners. Um, Like I said, this is the first time they'll be hearing from you guys. I hope it won't be the last time. Um, But we might start with you, Brian, just to go in alphabetical order. Brian, I'll just give you a moment to just introduce yourself. Tell me a little bit about, um, I guess, you and your role at Google. Sure. Um, So at Google, we're pretty fortunate. We have a team that's called uh, Google Earth Outreach. Um, And the whole goal of it is really to figure out how we can use Google's um, computing power, machine learning, um, our brand, our positioning, and everything else to kind of advance environmental and societal issues in the world. So we don't have a revenue quota. It's really just about how do you make a positive impact. And so that's a really fun team to be on. It sounds like a lot of fun. Where are you um, actually joining us from, though, today, geographically speaking? So I'm based out of San Francisco in California. God, I love the fact that you know, we used to run this podcast and it used to be like, um, well, I guess in the beginning we didn't know what we were doing. And I think last year in 2020, it forced us to think differently. So I'm really glad that we're able to facilitate this with you in San Francisco. And David, where are you joining us from? Um, I'm actually based in South Lake Tahoe, um, California right now in the Sierra. Uh, before this year, I've been in Oakland, California, just across the bay from from Brian. But during the pandemic, my family has uh, made for a little bit, gotten out of the city. Awesome. Well, Dave's love of the environment and society meant he kind of hightailed it out of the city and gone to nature. lived a mountain life. Yeah. <laughs> Turn back to nature. You hear a lot of that, um, actually, in the last year, people, you know, leaving oh, cities and things it, like that. Well, in our defense, we were, we were going to do this uh, before the pandemic, but then everyone else had the same idea. So. Oh, they copied you. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. But we are we are likely coming back to the Bay Area regardless. Lovely. David? Well, I mean, for the record, he, he, he drags his kids to uh, school on skis and bikes uh, in the snow up there. So he, that's legitimate. That's not yeah. anything that I can relate to here in Australia whatsoever, <sighs> but it sounds really cool. I'm not sure your kids would say that, though, <laughs> by the sounds of it. <laughs> They mostly complain when I stop skiing. Like, go, daddy. <laughs> um, David, could, mush, you, mush. could you tell us a little bit about, um, I guess, what you do at Global Fishing Watch and your role there? 
So I'm the I'm the director of research and innovation, and what I do is I coordinate and run our research program, which includes both a in-house team of data scientists and machine learning engineers, and then a global network of research institutions that we work with uh, to apply our data and help develop it and answer important research questions. Very cool. Now, I know you guys have um, known each other for a really long time, and we'll get to that, and we'll talk about Global Fishing Watch and how it all started. Um, but I guess I'd love to set the scene first um, with you, Brian, and talk a little bit about the Google Earth Outreach team in more detail. You did just touch on it there before. I think when you know we think about satellite imagery and mapping, we all automatically think about the benefits it can bring to us from a land value. Um, and you know that's a really important part of what you do, you're doing in the Google Earth Outreach team. Is like you said, you know, doing great things for the world. But you know, we always typically think about the land and how these tools that we have can, you know, show us what we know about the land. But oceans, you know, they're their own completely separate ecosystem and entity. Um, What ocean projects or, you know, how did oceans come up for you in the Google Earth Outreach team and what impact has that had on your team? I I think your description is fairly accurate in the sense that most people kind of think about what's directly around them and oceans are traditionally out of sight and out of mind. Um, But people that go off and get involved with them generally... Uh, find it a pretty special space. So uh, on some sides throughout throughout history, um, our teams kind of led things like underwater street view, which was taking the same information that you'd have um, not only when you drive a car down the street or if you put on a, a backpack with a fancy little um, trekker, as we call them, and walk through the national parks and people could experience that in street view. We also brought that to the underwater world and did some coral reefs and some uh, national marine um, refuge and heritage sites and um, there's a lot about getting people to connect with that. But I think Global Fishing Watch was really coming about by saying like, you know, how do we really engage on a much deeper level to actually make change in these spaces, not just be pushing awareness in that way. Yeah, definitely. Was um, I heard that one of those um, projects that you did with the Underwater Street View, which sounds really, really cool, was actually Great Barrier Reef? Yeah, that was really the first one. Um, so there's, there's long Australian heritage there. And uh, a lot of the partners that we worked with uh, for that are based out of Australia as well. And for me, it was any excuse to go to Australia was a good excuse. So. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a pretty cool day in the office, if you ask me. Um, I wonder, you know, I might have to start asking Nathan if we can do some kind of work over there so I can get over to the Great Barrier Reef and do some <laughs> mapping over there too. <laughs> yeah, no, it all sounds really great. And I think you're right. I think we, you know, um, as humans, we're kind of programmed to see what we can see on the surface, but maybe not really so much about what's happening underneath. So that's really, really cool. And I'm really excited to talk more about that. But um, David, let's talk a little bit about you and Global Fishing Watch, which became its own independent not-for-profit organisation in June of 2017. But that wasn't really the beginning of your involvement in the initiative, was it? I believe you were with one of the partners beforehand. How did you find your way into this role? Uh, that's correct. I, I worked with SkyTruth. Um, well, I found my way in this role because I had, I, I think I had lunch with Brian in 2015. Uh, my, my wife and I actually, we had just taken a year off and, and traveled around the world uh, after we got married and then came back and we're looking for work. And I, I ended up doing a lot of different uh, projects, doing environmental big data work because I'd done some work in the last decade looking at the growth in satellite technology. And my background is in earth system science and realizing that there's just really exciting opportunities in um, using big data and satellite monitoring to, to make a difference and do interesting work. 
Um, and so I got connected up with Brian and, and Sky Truth um, that was using, who's is a nonprofit based in West Virginia that focuses on doing um, environmental monitoring using satellites, basically acting like a watchdog um, with imagery. And that was the organization that first started partnering with Google on, on this on Global Fishing Watch. Um, and this was by far the most exciting project they had. And, and I actually started volunteering one or two days a week playing around with the data. And then it just really just sucked me in. And the next thing I know, I'm working full time for five years, six years. <laughs> so. so you guys go way back. Yeah, I guess it was like the ultimate mandate. Um, another coworker <laughs> suggested we meet up. We had a, a long lunch together where we talked all about machine learning and uh, kind of bike touring around the world. And when we went back to my place and looked at my garage and went through all the bikes that I had and talked about bike camping and things like that. So whether you cut that or not is up to you. No, I think we're leaving that in the podcast. <laughs> um, that's really, really awesome. And like so much history there, but um, I'd love to go back a little bit Again, I want to go back to the beginning of what is now Global Fishing Watch, um, which I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, I've got in my notes starting up in 2015, officially. I, give or take. I think so. Uh, but the, yeah, yeah, the I, idea really was started in 2013 or 2014. And that was um, with Sky Truth, yeah? Yeah. Well, I think it was. what's fun is uh, because we have founding partners and we're all very passionate about this, um, you know, the reality is it was a long time ago and everybody has their own story. Um, and so, uh, but for the most part, they align in this way. And so uh, Google Earth Outreach used to hold kind of these big conferences where we'd bring a lot of other nonprofits and academics uh, together to look at how Google tools could be used in their area. And uh, Paul Woods was uh, the CTO of SkyTruth and they were doing a couple things. Um, and so we were demonstrating how much data you could fit in a browser. And to do that, we we're showing kind of ships moving across the ocean. But it was more of a visualization exercise and a technology exercise. And at the same time, Paul was looking at how you could kind of monitor marine protected areas to see if boats would be fishing in or around there. But the reality is if you looked at a terminal and saw all these boats moving in an area, you didn't really know what the boat was doing unless you had some expertise in that. And so he had an analyst there that used to work on fishing vessels as a, a monitor and so if he looked at them, he'd be able to say, oh, well, this is a trawler based on how it's moving. And this is a long line vessel based on how it's moving. And so he was sharing some of that information with us. And what we said is like, it takes a human to be able to do that because we're picking out a pattern. But if we could take their approach of kind of taking this large feed of data that a human looked at and picked out those patterns and merge that with kind of the global visualizations that we were able to do for other vessels, we could start to build something that anybody in the world that had that expertise could do for anywhere in the world. And then the next step of that was because a human's able to do it, can we train a computer to recognize the same patterns that a human can? And then that was the, maybe there's something here, let's go play with this and see what comes. It sounds amazing. And I think about now, like when you say that about just, you know, can we teach a computer to recognize these patterns? Can we do that? And we look at where we are now, and the fact that we, we can do that and it's actually quite effective is astounding. So I'd imagine that this has been a tremendously helpful tool um, for several people, I guess, and every year you're getting more and more data and more and more information and having a huge amount of impact. Yeah. I think what was interesting is when we first started it, it wasn't, the idea was like, this is something that will become almost inevitable within a couple of years. 
And when we were first doing it, it was kind of just becoming possible. And that's true across a, a series of areas. You know, from a technology perspective, we were just starting to get more and more of the satellite data of where boats were positioned. And if you looked kind of three years before we did that, when you looked at the data, it's very coarse. And so you don't really have a sense of where a lot of these boats are. But it was just starting to fill in at a global level when we were doing it. You know, the cloud computing had been out there, but the ability to start to use machine learning on that was relatively new, but showed a lot of promise. And then if you also looked at it from a regulatory perspective or an ocean perspective, those areas were really changing a lot too. And so more and more boats were required to carry these AIS transponders, which are broadcasting their position. So not only the coverage of those boats was increasing, but the number of those boats was going up substantially. Uh, the EU was requiring it in ways that hadn't before. The US was shrinking the size of the boat that was required to capture it. And at the same time, I think we've, we've seen kind of a, a continued growth on the environmental front of people kind of wanting to make more commitments to this space. And then we've seen kind of large agencies like um, United Nations pushing the Port State Measures Agreement that's trying to require more of this. Um, and then we also see kind of the private industry really looking at their supply chain and the commitments within that. Uh, and that's both from kind of an environmental perspective, but also the pure fiscal one saying, look, we need to ensure we're going to have fish for the next 15 or 20 years because so much of our business is based on it. And there was a societal impact that people were becoming more and more aware of things like slave labor in their supply chain. And they want to ensure that from a brand and risk management perspective, that wasn't happening. So all these things were coming together that I think really aligned well, but I don't think it could have been done five or 10 years earlier. And I think it's only really becoming at the scale that's like fully operational in the last two or three years. Yeah, definitely. And we all know that when you have a great idea about something and, you know, I guess the idea is a little bit more independent of what you're maybe considering, you know, the day job is, is that you need partners, you know, I'm thinking back again, like going back to 2015, it's like, this is a great idea. We have the capability to do this um, and we think it can be done. But in my mind, it's always better when you've got other organisations, other people around you who share that same passion, are willing to support that idea. You know, when you're driving an initiative of this scale, I'd imagine with this such a huge level of impact, you need those other partners. And I'm sure that early on those partners were pivotal in helping to deliver the initiative too. And you have a pretty amazing list of partners and founders. But David, maybe you can talk us through a little bit more about who these key organizations and even people are? Yeah, and I think it's important to think about when you talk about partners, what the real challenge is you can't just have a nice technology here, you know, because the people, what, what Google brought to the table and what some of the data scientists and machine learning people who brought to the table was exactly what Brian described, which is his ability to take this new technology and see fishing in an entirely new light. However, the people that know how to do that don't actually know what the fishing regulations are or where the legal fishing is that you should look, or know how to run a campaign to make change. And the people that know how to do those things don't have access to the data science. And, and what, you know, the, one of the biggest lessons for me on this project over the last, uh, you know, five, six years, is that in order to make use of these big data tools, you need an interdisciplinary team. And so what we have done is we are working with, um, so the initial, the initial Google Fishing Watch project was a collaboration between Google SkyTruth, a nonprofit that does uh, remote sensing, um, environmental monitoring, and Oceana, which is a campaign-driven nonprofit that tries to make policy change in the ocean. 
And so there you had kind of the three, the three different legs, each bringing something different to the table um, to be able to collaborate to do this. Now, I have also, I was brought on um, to help manage the, the research program, which was then this collaboration we have with um, leading researchers at different universities. And, and we originally were going to work, when I joined the program to work with them, the idea was that they were going to give us stuff which we could then put into Global Fishing Watch. And what quickly became apparent there for me is that the leading researchers, the people that know the most about ocean science, biology, ocean policy, um, economics, don't have the big data resources to process this stuff or make sense of it or machine learning. And so by connecting it up with them, we were able to not only produce new exciting tools for Google Fishing Watch and then provide useful things for our policy partners, but also do really breakthrough science. And that has been some of the most, uh, for me personally, the most exciting thing is is getting to make discoveries that that no one has has done before, because you have these collaborations. Yeah, no, definitely, and and it's really inspiring to hear you guys speak about this project, and, and you have so much passion for it. It's actually quite lovely. I mean, I, I'm really lucky in the position that I have here at um, NGIS Australia is that I get to be involved at a, I guess, on the peripheral of these sorts of things and seeing the impact that they're making. And there's so many amazing projects happening at the moment and so many wonderful initiatives. And it really is a privilege to be involved. And I can hear it in both of your voices that I can hear how humbled you are, I think, to, to be involved and to be making this kind of difference. It's really cool. So I'd love to start diving into some of the technical side of Global Fishing Watch and and what takes place under the hood. You know, we've got a lot of listeners that love talking about the technology side of things and we kind of brushed on it earlier about what's possible. Global Fishing Watch, I know, has over more than 10 terabytes of global fishery data and is collecting millions of messages from over around 200,000 vessels daily. That's absolutely massive. Um, How much of a challenge was it for the team to design and architect a data pipeline to scale with collecting this much information? Well, the current tools actually make it very easy in some ways. You know, then, and it, there, there's a lot of challenges in it, but the the modern big data stuff, and we use, we use Google Cloud Platform um, for all of our processing, it makes it easy to scale things. So you have one operation and all you have to do it, you know, is uh, 50 billion times and, and you can just do it. <laughs> It just distributes across a lot of computers. We also use a lot of um, Google BigQuery for our analysis. So, so it's a big challenge, and it's but it's becoming easier and easier. So, so I think that that's kind of one answer. That the answer is that it does take a bunch of engineering time. There are certain problems, but it's it's there's a lot of tools to deal with it that did not exist a decade ago. I just checked our database, and we have over 50 billion um, GPS positions in our database. So that's, that's, unbel- uh, that's, that's- unbelievable. Um, it's really great. You know, I, I love hearing that we have a, a lot of um, clients and lots of partners and really cool projects and a lot of the projects that we're doing in our Google Earth Engine and Group on Earth Observations projects. You guys might have heard about those that a loving Google Cloud platform, David, for the same reasons that you said. It's like, you know, if it needs to scale up, it just it just happens and they're all collecting huge amounts of data as well. So it's really advantageous, I think, particularly I'm finding in the satellite imagery space um, and also having access to these, you know, numerous data catalogs that can supplement the good work that's being done too. So for me, I guess it's starting to seem like it just makes sense for, for projects of this kind. But I'd love to go through a little bit more detail with you, Brian, just about Google Cloud and Google Earth Engine 
um, and how they're being used to deliver Global Fishing Watch because that is a, a huge focus of what we do here at NGIS and some of those projects that I just mentioned. Can you talk us through in a bit more detail about that side of things? Sure. I, I'll probably kick that to David, though, just because uh, while I did a lot of the initial work in the beginning, uh, Global Fishing Watch has kind of grown to a, uh, about a 50 or 60 person uh, nonprofit now, and I'm not as involved in day to day and all the constant pipeline redos. So, uh, David, why don't you kind of maybe walk through some of, some of the great examples of like the recent components coming out of that as well as how it's been applied? Yeah, uh, well, I think that, uh, well, I want to talk to um, what we're doing next. You know, I think I think it's good to keep, just give you some examples of what we're currently doing um, is we're making, so we're calculating fishing activity all over the world from these vessels. So we're taking, you know, some 300, 400,000 vessels at sea all their GPS positions for a year, and then running machine algorithms to identify which of those are fishing vessels and when are they fishing. And then we take that database of fishing vessels of which there's about 60 to 70,000 and then that are active. And we make that, we make the effort, we map the fishing activity and then we're able to share that. And then we do all types of work on top of that. So um, you can imagine, it's really amazing how much information is in the behavior of how boats move. We can tell how big the boat is just based on its movement. And a recent study we did, which is kind of incredible and, and just extremely disturbing, is we can estimate whether or not we think they are paying their crew based on their behavior. And what we did there is there's a, um, we basically got lots of examples of boats that had known cases of forced labor. Uh, this is a shockingly big problem in the fishing industry, especially in some of these high seas fleets, which can stay at, at sea for many, many months at a time and get a very low cost labor from parts of the developing world. There's many instances of basically uh, forms of modern slavery. And we got many examples of these boats and they have their GPS devices on and we can see how they move. And we could find boats that behave similarly, you know, and they often tend to fish more hours per day, go farther from port, all these very, you know, these aren't, now this doesn't tell us that they definitely had forced labor, but it tells you which ones have a high risk. And so that's really um, exciting about that, how much behavior information you get based off just how these boats move. And so now we're, we're, we're going, going on in that. I also want to, you know, um, talk a little bit about Earth Engine and what we're doing with that so that we've been looking at this behavioral information off of the IS data. And as you can imagine, there are um, a lot of boats that do not broad voluntarily broadcast their GPS coordinates. You know, you can imagine those that are trying to do something illegal um, would not. You know, and as much as twenty percent of the the fishing activity in the ocean is done in, by vessels that are fishing illegally or fishing unregulated or um, not reporting their catch. And so, it's a very large portion that is legal or we are not able to track. And a lot of that is done by vessels not broadcasting. So how do we see them? And the answer is you take pictures from satellites. And so we're working, currently working to expand our on using satellite imagery and radar. And we've actually just did that in the past year. We, we published a paper where we used optical imagery and radar to reveal uh, massive illegal fishing in um, North Korea. And we should we should go on about that, uh, study a little bit more because it's it's a uh, um, I'd love for you to dramatic yeah, finding. talk about that um, with us. I mean, yeah, please elaborate. But I'm going to talk about that. But I, I want to note first that that what we're it's it's exciting to go from just looking at these GPS positions to radar and optical, which is what we're doing now. 
And so you imagine like we talked, we started five years ago with GPS positions and in the last basically two years, we're expanding into other forms of imagery. And, and that's extremely exciting. And there are these global feeds, but it's, it's kind of funny, you know, we had big data before and now we're looking at much bigger data. So we were talking about, we have several terabytes of data um, from GPS decisions. And now we're processing all of the world's publicly available radar data, which is a thousand times bigger, a petabyte. Uh, and we're able to do that with Google Earth Engine, which is extremely exciting. Um, and so we're actually able to process all of this radar image, look where we see vessels in it, and then combine that with our GPS data to see what is happening around the world's coastlines. Yeah, absolutely. Um, David, thank you for giving us a little bit more of an insight into Google Earth Engine um, and how that's being used. I'm really interested to talk about the way that Global Fishing Watch has been providing a communication or collaboration tool for researchers to engage with you. And can you talk us through how Global Fishing Watch is engaging with researchers to provide access to this fishing activity? Yeah, so we we have about 10 official research partnerships where we um, connect, where we, we work closely with labs. And one of the things we do is they're able to access our raw AIS data to do our raw, the GPS data vessels to help do science on it. And as I said, that's really a collaboration where they bring the expertise on the fishery science and we bring machine learning and data science. Uh, and through that, we're able to do all types of science that would not be possible otherwise. Um, one of the examples is um, what I just talked about with um, able to identify vessels that have high risk of forced labor. Uh, you know, in other cases, um, there was one study that looked at how, looked at, um, got GPS positions of, of sharks all over the world. Like there's, you know, people tag, put GPS devices on sharks um, and then are able to see where sharks go and build out maps of shark habitat and, and where they are. Now, if you imagine you combine that with our fishing data, you can see where sharks are more at risk to being caught. Um, and so there was a nice global study on nature that came out about that. You know, we've also done studies to show that fishing in the high seas is not profitable because you can actually estimate the fuel cost of boats and, and estimate their overall cost. And that was a study um, a few years ago. And, and one of the things that came out of that is that fishing on the high seas, you can only explain what we see through both massive subsidies and extremely low labor costs. So the only way you can explain what we're seeing, this fishing activity we're seeing based on our best guesses of the economics is if they're underpaying their crew, which is another reason we then went and did that study on the, on the forced labor. So there's just a tons of kind of information we can gain from this global database of vessel activity. Um, and we really have to do it by working with the leading experts and collaborating with them to get the information out. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's really setting the benchmark, I think, what you guys are doing and at Global Fishing Watch for other initiatives and organisations to use cloud technology, satellite imagery, um, when it comes to tackling important environmental issues, and maybe even a way for them to understand their own impact on our planet. Uh, Brian, is this something that you are talking about within your team at Google Earth Outreach? And how is your team or the team that you work with in putting this capability to good use in other ways? Sure. So uh, Global Fishing Watch is kind of a, one of our lighthouse examples where we kind of um, invested heavily on it. Um, as the whole, there's, there's always the, a portfolio of projects that we're working on. Some of them are really about kind of enabling long tail partners, uh, groups like Jane Goodall, being able to map out chimp habitat and how that's been changing. We have another person that works uh, closely with 
a lot of indigenous communities to be able to map their ancestral lands, as well as to kind of show how the, the land's been used and changing so that they can really defend those places as other areas look to encroach upon them. Um, another project that we had spent um, some substantial work on was working with the United Nations environment uh, around the sustainable development goals. In that case, it was about mapping out where surface water is and how that's been changing over the last 30 or 40 years. And in the initial surveys that UN Environment did for the sustainable development goals related to water, they found that about 80% of countries didn't have the ability to kind of report their basic water statistics and how that's been shifting. And so using Earth Engine and a lot of these uh, similar data catalogs, we've been able to map that out and then partnering with these other groups kind of break down large Earth observation data sets into the digestible components and statistics that the ministries of the environment and other groups can use directly. And so we went from 80% of the countries not being able to report on this to now having kind of the vast majority of them using this data for their official SCG reporting. Um, these other groups that are looking closely at classifying everywhere on Earth what type of land that is and how that's been changing over time. Um, because that's what's really driving a lot of our emissions data. It's, you know, in the case of rainforests, when we're losing trees, a lot of that is kind of the carbon escape. But then we're also seeing what do they get converted to, how much goes to agriculture, how much goes to pasture, what goes to urbanization and other areas. So having kind of a publicly available data set that is kind of globally consistent, but locally relevant, we say, has really been uh, extremely informative for these groups. Absolutely. And the theme of impact is something I can feel coming through pretty much every question I've asked you guys in this podcast and how we can use technology to have this positive impact. And I think something I want to talk about, though, is that there's demonstrating, you know, what a tool can do and what information it can gather for us. But then another part of it is what do you actually do with that once you have that information and, and how can you put it to good use and make positive change in the world. And that could be at a policy level or an environmental level. Something you were talking about, David, which wasn't probably something I thought about before coming on the podcast, is this angle of forced labour and how you're able to track boats that you feel, you know, could be having people on there that are, in, in a way, in a slave labour situation. Um, I'd love to talk more about maybe some places um, or some times in the Global Fishing Watch history and that could be back, you know, early days or it could be up to now where you've seen the tool and that you guys have built really have an impact and make change. What are some highlights for you? There's a lot of different areas we can go with this, but uh, I think that's kind of what's exciting about saying the platform and the idea behind it was put the data out there and make it as accessible and as free as possible and then really enable other partners to kind of go and build on that. Um, so in the case of marine protected areas, National Geographic has a program called uh, Pristine Seas that Enrique Salo leads. And what's happened in many of these cases is they'll go into some of the areas of the ocean that have the highest biodiversity or are really important for fish recruitment uh, and kind of managing those stocks to ensure that they'll be abundant forever. And they'll film these kind of uncharted pristine seas. And in many cases, though, the question then is, how do, how do we protect those areas to ensure they're there for the next generations? And so he may work with a local politician or the president in many cases and show them the footage that's being captured there and talking about how this is a, a wonderful legacy that can really be there for future generations um, and the value of protecting it and showing that from a tourism perspective, 
the, the fish stock is actually worth more for bringing in uh, tourism from an economic perspective than you get from harvesting these. Um, and what often happens in these cases, though, there's, there's pushback from the private industry or potentially from other fishing lobbying groups. And what they will say is, if you close this area to fishing, that is kind of jobs on the line that will be lost. That is food security for the country that will be lost. And for a politician, those are both very scary things. But this openness of data has really enabled these nonprofits as well as the government itself to say, well, here's a map, for example, across Mexico of everywhere that the tuna industry actually fishes. And that's taken right from Global Fishing Watch. And the area that we're looking to protect is a less than 2% of the total areas that you're fishing. And it's less than 2% of your revenues for that area. And so closing that area will not be that threat to the jobs. It will not be that threat to the food security. If anything, we're only establishing that because you'll have the spillover effect beyond that. And so being armed with that data that was never available before, new marine protected areas that are being created. And this, that same methodology that they did, um, they've applied across seven other marine protected areas that cumulatively add up to the size larger than Egypt. Um, and so that methodology is something that they're able to kind of just repeat and repeat based on new data that's coming out. That's right. And it's just, it's just amazing how coming to the table with data really allows these uh, negotiations to happen and, and really has allowed the establishment of those theories. And I think that's one of the most exciting things about it. I think, um, you know, from an enforcement standpoint, we've, we've worked with the U.S. Coast Guard. And one of the interesting things is um, the most useful information is not the real time, where are people right now? But what we've did is provided kind of a historical analysis of a lot of vessels operating in a specific area in the Pacific and said, this is the area where the most sketchy activity is happening and these are the vessels. And it increased, when they used our data for that information, it increased their success at, at, at kind of catching um, violators by a factor of eight because they were able to target it more effectively. I mean, the ocean is really, really big. <laughs> and, and the boats uh, fish across, you know, are widely spread out across it, but actually concentrate, the things you care about actually are concentrated in a few places. And so if you know where to look, you can cut down on those costs of enforcement and management by orders of magnitude. And so with our large pile of historical data, we can help do that. So I think that's exciting. Another thing we're doing is working with governments around the world to provide them directly with our information and also um, been encouraging them to share their data. So we've gotten, you know, there's, in addition to the GPS vessel data we have, there's also um, vessel monitoring systems or VMS uh, that different countries have, and it's they track their vessels' movements on GPS positions, but private data. It's not public like the data we're using. And there's a lot of vessels which don't have the type of device we track, but do have this private data. And we've been able to convince some countries to make this data public because, you know, these fish are using a public resource and their activity should be public in, in many cases. And so we've gotten Indonesia, Peru, uh, Chile, um, and a few others coming soon to be able to share their data publicly. So much good work being done, guys, and so much good work, I'm sure, still to come. But, David, the big question is, what's next for Global Fishing Watch? What have you guys got planned? Well, I think I, think I gave it away a bit there when I talked about <laughs> the, uh, using the, the satellite imagery, which is the, the um, bringing in other sources of information. So we've been tracking fishing vessels. And this technology we've been using of, of GPS positions of vessels on the water 
and um, also some of this new imagery, satellite radar and optical we've been doing is good for monitoring all human activity at sea. And so you can imagine there's this 71% of the world's surface, which is the ocean, um, which is extremely poorly monitored and human use is accelerating of it. And what we can do with this is monitor all human vessel traffic, at least at least large vessels, industrial traffic on the ocean to be able to understand how we're using it. And hopefully that information can empower us to use it in a more sustainable, fair way. And that kind of gets into the, the stories Brian was telling about marine protected areas. You know, you want to help that across the whole world. And that's only possible if we really understand human activity in the ocean. Sounds really exciting. And I can't wait to hear more. And I'm thinking maybe you know, a year from now, we'll be chatting again and you can keep us up to date on what's been happening with all of that, David. I think that's all we've got time for today. And I really want to thank both of you, Brian, David, for for being here on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you. And like I said earlier on, I hope it's not the last time we'll have you back again. And Brian, maybe even for you to talk about some other projects that you're doing within the Google Earth Outreach team, that would be really cool too. All right. Well, thanks so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Before we go, um, we might have some listeners who'd like to know more about Global Fishing Watch or maybe some listeners who want to get their hands on the Google Cloud tools, don't know where to start. What resources would each of you recommend to our audience if they'd like to know more? David, do you want to start with that? Uh, Well, I would would definitely go to Uh, globalfishingwatch.org. And on it is an interactive map where you can see this data that we've been talking about and allows anyone in the world to track fishing activity, click on individual vessels, see where they fished. It's animated now across nine years of activity, which is kind of amazing. So that's the first place I would go. And I think uh, within that, um, if you go to the blog section, you can really get some good stories. We've touched on one or two of them, um, but kind of seeing those impacts and kind of just seeing the breadth of that, um, the idea that there's people that are kind of shark ecologists, there's other ones that are big policy wonks, there's someone else that... Uh, is really into economics and they're all being reflected and opened up through this data. Oh, and, and definitely go to the, the research publications page. <laughs> is that a shameless plug? <laughs> yeah, is that. Well, guys, once again, thank you very, very much. We are going to include links to all of those resources that you just mentioned in our show notes. So for all of our listeners, don't forget, as usual, you can go to the njis.com.au podcast page. Um, So you'll just find that within the newsroom and we will include all of the links to these resources in the show notes. And don't forget that if you love listening to Location Matters, you can subscribe to us on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and Apple Podcasts. You've been listening to Location Matters, the podcast from NGIS, covering the world of mapping and location technology. To find more episodes or to read our blog, check out our website, ngis.com.au.